Welcome everyone to POV Crypto, the only podcast that both Bitcoiners and Ethereans listen to. I'm David Hoffman here with my buddy Christian. Christian, how are you doing? Doing good, man. This is like the jankiest intro setup we got, but hey, we're pumping out shows, guys. We're just pumping them out no matter what. Yeah, I'm on a different computer. I don't got my microphone. I don't even have Wi-Fi. I'm using some neighbor's Wi-Fi, but uh, I think this is going to come out okay. We had an interview with Mike Dunworth from Wire. Uh, Mike is a uh, former Australian now living in Silicon Valley, just down the street from Christian, actually. So Christian was able to just kind of hop on over to the Wire studio where they record their own podcast and uh, actually use their infrastructure. So this will be one of the better sounding podcasts in a while. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, despite the intro, the actual podcast has a really incredible audio, thanks to Wire. This was a lot of fun. Uh, it was great to hang out with Mike and great to pick his brain. I think he has super nuanced views of how the existing financial system, the Bitcoin financial system, and the Ethereum financial system are all kind of coming together and uh, interacting with each other. And I think his company is really a great Um, example of his interesting perspectives coming together. Uh, So I think this is a super awesome, awesome interview and you guys are going to like it a lot. But yeah, before we get into the rest of the the interview, let's talk about our sponsors. First, let's go with Unchained Capital. Unchained Cap is one of my favorite companies in the space. They are a new Bitcoin financial institution really built on native Bitcoin technology, particularly Bitcoin multisig. Both of their products, their Vault for Cold Multisig Storage and their uh, loan product uh, that enables you to, uh, to put your Bitcoin as collateral and get USD loans are built on top of Multisig and are always holding funds, never rehypothecated on the blockchain. Um, I personally use the Vault product all the time. It's really designed to make Multisig easy for anyone. They make a really cool interface. They are one of the co-signers. You hold on to two keys, so you have complete control of the two of three multi-sig. Um, and they give a lot of cool extra benefit uh, financial financial services on top of those um, on top of the multi-sig. So if you want to store your funds in a way that makes you really feel secure, I really recommend uh, the Unchained Vault. And then, of course, friends don't let friends sell Bitcoin. So um, Using Bitcoin-backed loans is a great way to get liquidity, get USD without actually having to sell. Um, So check out Unchained Capital at unchained-capital.com or email them at hello at unchained-capital.com. Up next is eToro. You guys know all about it. eToro is one of the best exchanges in the world. They started off by bringing American equities to Asia, US, or sorry, Asia, Europe, and and, uh, in Israel. And then now eToro as a company is bringing Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies to the U.S. with a lot of amazing, cool and innovative products. Uh, I think one of their best products is their copy trader feature. Essentially, what you can do is you can allocate U.S. dollars to an active trading style and strategy uh, with one click of the mouse. You don't actually have to do any trading. You just have to select the best traders and allocate X amount of dollars to their trading uh, strategy. And then from there, whatever they trade, you trade with them. Um, On the flip side, you can go completely with the most conservative strategy, which is stacking sats and pulling the money off the exchange and putting it in your hardware wallet. eToro is a one-stop shop. I'm a big fan of of their interface, and I'm a big fan of all their different products. Uh, So check out eToro at our link, 
b.tc backslash etoro pov. Again, that is b.tc backslash etoro pov. All right, guys, let's just roll right on into the episode with Mike Dunworth from Wire. Michael Dunworth, welcome to POV Crypto. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. So uh, Christian is actually in the Wire studio, which uh, means that all of a sudden the uh, POV infrastructure is just a, a ton better. So thank you for hosting. I, I wish I was there. I'm still stuck in, stuck in Miami, but uh, really excited for, for this conversation. It's going to be a good one. The perks of being in SF, man. It's great. <laughs> Everyone's here. <laughs> So, uh, Michael, I was wondering if you could just start with how Wire came to be uh, and uh, kind of how it's grown in the crypto sphere to what it is today. Um, you know, we added Bitcoin as a payment method on this sort of one click checkout we were doing. And I suppose over like, three or four years of iterating through bear markets and winters and all that sort of shit, we were just like, okay, sweet. Uh, we had to get all these licenses and do all this sort of stuff. And it was just, oh, I mean, you feel the pain, like the nightmares that we went through and obviously have to go through. And we are just like, okay, we need to productize this. And that's the actual company that we're going to end up building pretty much. So we rebranded to Wire after, you know, several iterations. And that was in the end of 2016. And we said, if teams are going to go to market, it can't take six months. The windows of opportunity in crypto, generally speaking, like we're sort of trying to dethrone the heavyweight champion of history, which is finance. And it's not going to roll over or let any opportunity displace it. So if you've got to move, you've got to move quickly. And there's no chance that people could move quickly if everyone had to keep doing all this licensing, uh, you know, well, like all the licensing stuff generally. And that's what I sort of blanketed as. So Jack Dorsey, I think he, when he built Square, that was like, it took him 38 days to build it and then 19 months to go live. So if you think about that, basically he built it in, you know, takes two seconds. The software is not the issue. It's all the licensing to sort of tick the box basically. I forgot what you even asked, actually, now that I think about it. Did, well, did that even start like hit the mark? No, definitely, definitely. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, so it was just, just to recap, you guys were a payments company that wanted to accept Bitcoin. And so you solved all these, uh, you went, overcame all these hurdles that allowed you to accept Bitcoin. And you then were like, wait a second, the real cool product is what we just overcame, which is the compliance and the merchant uh, system for accepting Bitcoin, right? I mean, yeah, the TLDR, that'd be accurate, pretty much. I mean, we started a one-click checkout where you could go to like 10 different, 10 different websites. You go to Newegg, Zara, this, that, whatever. And then you press checkout and it just goes into one spot. We started accepting Bitcoin for that because then in 2013 with the bull run, uh, like late 2013, that ended up being a really good opportunity for people to spend Bitcoins, take profit and things like that. So, um, and then 2014, bear market, we wanted to natively accept it. 2015, we added wallets because we were just trying to get away from the bear market basically and wallets is obviously less exposed to spending bitcoin because you're not going to spend your you know all your profits in a bear market because you don't have any profits and so we kept iterating until we got to this point and like you know how they say like uh you know i grew up in argentina and i could never send money internationally and i just wanted to try and solve payments or whatever it is 
we don't have that story. Like I've got Bank of America on my phone. I've been lucky enough to not have that pain point. But the pain point I did have was like, move to, you know, move to America. And it was just like, fuck me. I have no idea how anyone could ever think they're going to innovate on anything in finance. Like, I mean, it's baffling. So anyway, we felt that that was the most needed thing given the time of the market and stuff. Mike, can you talk a little bit about like what Wire is today? Like I've used it many times. It's integrated into a ton of apps. I think that a lot of people use it and don't even know it. Like what is Wire? Um, I mean, Wire is essentially uh, the infrastructure. Well, I mean, sorry, the, the pitch, I suppose, would be why is the simplest uh, the simplest way for teams to accept uh, digital currencies and fiat fiat payments, basically? So, um, typically, we like to think of it as we've done all the hard stuff in terms of compliance, regulatory obligations, and stuff like that. We wrap it all up in an API, and then we basically let you go run wild with it. So. Um, it's typically white labeled and then more recently at the end of 2018 start of 2019 which is probably more familiar with like some of the viewers uh or listeners um it, we wanted to sort of take a step back because cryptos you know you know how like security sensitive everything is you know how uh money and any anytime somebody gets hacked or anything like that um there's no recourse so we didn't want developers uh to be less experienced but less secure so we tried to bundle all that white label api into sort of a widget which is a drag and drop uh sort of like you know you don't have to be a super experienced developer to use it but um you're not compromising any security on the end or whatever so that's probably the worst elevator pitch on earth how did i do you guys investing well, how, so with with like, so I guess the, what was really interesting and obviously the infrastructure is really important, but that kind of drag and drop API is what allows any crypto wallet that's non-custodial to up, just add in Bitcoin purchasing through your phone or, or Ether purchasing through your phone. Like it, it, it really is kind of like a, a game changer for, hey, I just want to integrate into into or integrate the crypto and the, the fiat system together. Like, I mean, the the premise was basically, even if you build something cool in the space, like you build the best game or whatever, and you add it, let's say you list it on Product Hunt, and it goes bananas, and you get 100,000 people sign up, you can't even take their money if you wanted to, because you can't tap into the incumbent system. So like, that becomes a really big pain point. And if we're trying to think about developers developers building something that's sustainable not at the mercy of sort of vcs and markets and stuff like at the end of the day we wanted people to be able to build something sort of sustainable and generate revenue like address your total addressable market because you you know like 2017 guys you would have seen all the pictures of like you know we're disrupting the supply chain industry and that's a five squillion dollar industry but there's, you know, 26 million active accounts on Coinbase. So we're actually just, you know, targeting 26 million users that all have $4 in their, you know, account on average. So if you can't reach your total addressable market, then it's not your total addressable market. So how do we sort of just forget that, uh, that pain point and just, yeah, drop it in, start tapping into everyone? Do you expect, like, my mom to use Apple Pay and buy Bitcoin so she can unlock something in, a, in an app that only accepts it? I mean... Uh, does your mom like crypto? No, I, hope I, she, I, I hope she likes doing cool stuff in apps. Yeah. Well, I mean, so the best thing about, I mean, sorry, firstly, I think, yes, your mom will, but I don't know if she's going to go and buy crypto for the sake of buying crypto. I think what people are working on really nicely at the moment is sort of that entry point 
where, I mean, it's becoming a tipping point. So your mum is probably not going to go buy crypto, but your mum is probably going to say, I want to move, you know, move some of my money from my debit card into something that's earning interest. It's meaningful to me. So maybe she goes into the DSR, but she doesn't actually know that she's uh, depositing $100 from a bank straight into the DSR, earning 5 7 6%. Yeah. So you think that I'm going to start up a, a fintech company that's going to offer, like maybe a challenger bank that's going to offer very high interest rates. In the back end, that is the die savings rate or uh, the savings account. And then on the front end is someone just like, you know, using Apple Pay to put money into that. Yeah. And uh, I mean, like Apple Pay... Apple Pay is really interesting from a bunch of different perspectives. And I'm not even shilling it because it was really kind of, you know, not seen as that important. But I mean, thinking in that premise of like, okay, we want people to build cool shit to do what they want to do. And we want people to be secure. If people are using Apple Pay, firstly, that means they've got a smartphone. The smartphones mean more opportunity for storage, security, securing claves, like the setup is more conducive to having security features that are really important with, you know, with storing crypto, basically. So um, touch ID, pin codes, all that kind of stuff. So that's a bonus. When you get, when you've got Apple Pay, I know that you have that. Same when, with any biometric authentication. It basically means that out of the box, by default, you have biometric authentication. So not for me, I personally, it's less, less affecting me. It's more affecting the user, but the main motivation is like the developer themselves. There is a ton of shit that we need to build and innovate on. And it's really hard to do that if they're answering support tickets about people getting hacked. So how do we get them out of harm's way or prevent potential issues that could arise? And so if people don't have smartphones or, you know, uh, people are doing different things like accepting credit cards, right? So one of the things before this, David, he was saying, um, oh, I used a credit card once and it worked and then it didn't work a couple of times later. So we cut credit cards off because a lot of people don't know that credit cards, obviously, you, you know, in a credit card, you've got a cash advance fee, right? Or when you withdraw money from the ATM, you withdraw a hundred bucks, it's different to, yeah, it's fucked, right? You, you don't want to do that. Yeah, you immediately get scolded. And so what happens is when people use credit cards, the banks treat that like it is a cash advance. So there is this risk that you run and it's not always right away. It sometimes happens retrospectively. So if all our like partners and dads that are trying to build cool shit, trying to take customers are now dealing with this mega backlash of people being like, you know, I deposited a hundred dollars into this savings account. And next thing I know, I've got $86 in my account because I've been charged a 14% fee or something. Uh, Coinbase experienced that in 2017. There's like a lot of articles actually, I think about them and WorldPay, where people just basically reamed them out really hard saying, you said it was a 2% fee and I've got an 18% fee on my account. So that's why for what it's worth, that's why you don't see a lot of credit card deposits on digital wallets, whether it's like uh, Google Pay, um, Apple Pay, yeah. What's the Apple Pay percentage? Uh, well, so we, so Google Pay, we're updating at the moment. Um, I would say Apple Pay is probably just way more, way more Apple Pay. Not, yeah. even, not even close? Not even close. Well, I mean, definitely not even close now because it's not, not active. But I mean, when it was active, it was uh, typically the most like, successful transactions would come through Apple Pay. Yeah. Mm. So can you talk about the importance of Apple Pay and Google Pay and, and why that unique... Um, 
feature of Google Pay and Apple Pay, the, the biometric security, why that actually allows you to deposit funds basically instantaneously? Well, I mean, we try and do, okay, so when you, okay, so here, just give I think he's asking about KYC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. What, and this is what yeah, I was about to say, right? So KYC is this really massive punish to go through. And it's really shit as well, because talking about like, uh, um, you know, making sure developers, they don't, we don't, you don't want people to have to become an expert into how to secure people's personal information and stuff like that. So any chance you get to not give your personal information over is a really big benefit and not a benefit as in, Hey, all your privacy, just straight up. Like everyone's information is everywhere. There's no point in duplicating it. Like if crack, if someone's onboarded with Kraken, I don't, don't send me their information. That's a burden I've got to have carry now because I've got to secure that information. And a lot of developers don't realize they're like, Oh, you know, Mount Gox, like, you know, or whatever the exchange is that gets hacked. I mean, I don't know if you guys saw like, uh, when all the information got leaked from one of these exchanges, but it's got all these people holding up selfies and cards. Oh, yes. Dude. There's some funny. There's oh, some yeah, funny I know. <laughs> Man, but like, can you imagine that? Like, that's just horrible. So I'm thinking like, how can you abstract that away? And obviously um, the reason why people take all that information, by the way. So the reason why you blood sample, star sign, all that kind of bullshit, when you do that, they're not doing that because the government says, yo, I want a selfie of this dude. It's like, government doesn't give a shit. Government, like, they literally care about, like, the government identify, like, your social security number, your name, and your date of birth, and your address. That's all you need to take from somebody. The reason why people take all this other shit is because when you make a payment, let's say you debit your bank account, so you connect Plaid and you pull money from your bank account, you're not paying us or Coinbase. You're getting Coinbase is saying, yeah, okay, I will underwrite you for the transaction because you have 60 days to reverse an ACH transaction and 90 days to reverse a card payment. So theoretically, after 60 days is when you have paid Coinbase or Kraken or Wire or whatever it is. And with a card, it's 90 days. Uh, does that make sense? So that's sort yeah, of... So the cost like, of these... Come into all that shit? Oh. Sorry, we have, we're having connection issues. So the, the cost of Coinbase's fees and just the revenue that they generate is partly to pay for some of these uh, rollbacks that, that occur. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. so the, the term's called, uh, yeah, rollbacks, chargebacks. So basically yeah. when you pay, when you make a deposit and they're trying to give it to you instantly, that's because when they go to the bank and the bank says, oh, hey, yeah, yeah, um, David actually reversed that $150 payment. So the bank just takes it out of your account, period. It's not a, uh, there's no questions asked. I'll take it out of your account and then you can proceed through a dispute resolution process, mm -hmm. which has usually a one-time fee of like, you know, 15 bucks. And then it's like a case of like customer support, everyone kind of mm -hmm. compiling this information to say you were actually you at the time you pressed the button. So that's why when you go and authenticate yourself and you log in from a new device and shit like that, I just hear a cycle over there. Is that mine? Oh, sorry, yeah, nice. Um, uh, Continue. Yeah, yeah, but when you log in from a new device and shit like that, the reason why they're making you check and authenticate is because they know that it's the same person who authenticated when the account was created. So that gives them, oh. they can build the case. So when you go and say, it wasn't me, it's like, bullshit, David, it wasn't you. It is you, mm -hmm. here's why. And it's like, these seven points. 
But even being able to win these disputes, like, I mean, if you're at war, which pretty much every crypto company is either with each other through really aggressive competition in exchange markets or, you know, like the traditional neo banks or banks coming into the space, people just, it's very, very like, uh, it's kind of like getting stuck in mud or like, you know, being wounded instead of being killed. So it's like really difficult because everyone has to carry this wounded soldier, which is all the resources at the company start getting drained really quickly when you have these dispute processes that everyone's right. trying to find. So, right. um, yeah. Bringing so talk about, okay. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, okay. exactly. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Nice. So it's, so there is a, in the EU, there is a movement for what's called uh, PSD2, I think, um, or PDS2 or some shit. It's basically those four acronym, whatever, but it's a combination of those letters and numbers. Um, and it basically says, because in this dispute resolution process, the bank is saying the liability is on the merchant at all times, which means the exchange, for, for example, right? So if the liability is on the merchant, then, I mean, theoretically, that means uh, they've got to fi figure it out or they're the ones getting debited. So kind of like with the open banking standards in the EU, which is why Apple Pay isn't, or not even Apple Pay, digital wallets, because it'll be Fitbits, it'll be uh, Samsung phones, anything that has got enough of a Amazon Alexa biometric authentication. It's basically saying the open banking standard said, hey, we can't innovate on shit. You guys need APIs that talk to each other and we don't want people staying with Barclays and not switching to whatever, Bank of Scotland or whatever the other banks are over there because it's too difficult. We don't want that. We want people to move wherever they can, whenever they want. And, um, and then basically with that came a lot of progression in the way that banks operate and stuff. So the liability shift on certain situations, which is when you do a biometric authentication, so voice, touch ID, face and shit, is, on, is back onto the issuing bank. So if the issuing bank, like Bank of America or whatever, is just giving out cards like lollies, that means the merchant is just going to get totally fucked. But if they're forced to hold, hold themselves accountable and they're the ones fitting the bill, then they are going to say, you know, you've got to have two factor on your bank account. You've got to approve every transaction over 50 bucks. Like it's, it's basically making them become, um, you know, it's putting them on notice basically. And so one of the ones with biometric authentication is smartphone based payments. So does that make sense or did I just ramble? Yeah, no, that, that's, that's, that's great. So the, there's, no, there's no innovation in uh, regulations like the US uh, government or the uh, European Union government didn't like create anything new. Really, it's just about the extra accountability that you are, can, can receive or rely on through facial recognition. And you can just make a stronger claim to, to payment processors. Is that right? Well-ish. Mm, Ish. Sort of like right direction. So okay. basically there was a thing, uh, the PSD2 or whatever it was. So there was like PDS or PSD1 and then PSD2 came out like last year. And what was getting mandated was a thing called the SCA, which is strong customer authentication. So that basically is, you know, conditionally adhering to whatever the cardholder has specified um, to be strong customer authentication. 
Have you ever seen Visa Checkout or MasterPass or any of those sort of odd bods like that? Those yeah, are really. Visa and MasterCard's uh, equivalent of a strong customer authentication. So Google Pay is a strong customer authentication. Apple Pay is a strong customer authentication. MasterPass and Visa Checkout or Visa Direct, maybe, I can't remember. But that's their two-factored debit card transaction or credit card transaction. Not it's everyone. Not, it's not that good. What? <laughs> At least the Visa, the Visa version is not that intense. Yeah, it's totally. It's like a, a web page that pops up. Exactly. I know. It's crazy. And there was a massive argument against it from all, all these like banks that were like, oh no, it's going to be terrible for business. You know, what sort of user experience? Like, bruh, shut the fuck up. You guys <laughs> have been fleecing everyone for years. Just calm your farm. Like, I'm pretty sure it's going to be okay. Like, anyway, so long story short, not everything. And like, it's not a t- entirely like any sort of silver bullet, but it is just sort of enabling best practices to, you know, enforce biometric authentication wherever possible. So unless, well, are you muted? No, no, I'm just I'm okay. trying to think about what I want to say is like, so <laughs> what, what are, what stupid are, shit? I could, no, I, could see, I totally see the, the pro side, right? So like what I, when I think of pros, um, for someone who's trying to buy something like even right now I use Apple pay all the time and mm-hmm. I don't have to send a receipt because the biometric authentication is way stronger. Like think of how archaic like writing a tip and signing the receipt is in this world. Like, so Apple pay definitely mm-hmm. takes this closer to the future, but at the same time, like, do we like, again, do we want Apple to just like own our face identity and like have be, essentially be the key to, you know, us interacting in the world. Uh, well, it's not Apple, it's your idea. phone, right? Yeah. And that was, so Apple specifically, I suppose. Yeah. Like, I know what you mean. But like the Apple, even Apple companies just system, doing, like, yeah. I don't know. And even still, like, like then it, we trade, you know, like just this mandate of KYC in general, still like, even with, you know, this iteration that makes it cleaner, like, I feel like it's still like not that. I a hundred percent agree. Great. It's like, what is it, is it like, who made that rule and why were they able to make it kind of thing? Um, but generally speaking, it's like, do we want to just be piling everything into WhatsApp or Google for all this biometric authentication so that then they've completely got me by the balls? Like, is that ideal? I would say, think about it this way. So with Apple specifically, um, you know, they've got, uh, yeah, they've got all like a really, really strong sort of privacy, um, whatever you want to call it, ethos or whatever. Um, but I mean, they still back up unencrypted. Pardon? They still iCloud back up unencrypted. Is it? Yeah. Oh, nice. Okay, cool. <laughs> Don't use iCloud. <laughs> uh, but, um, but basically, like, it's going to be doing all this, like, on-device machine learning. But let's say you're Google or Alexa, whatever's the one just storing it, you know, in the cloud. I think, um, yeah, I think it's, like, pretty problematic, especially when you look at deep fakes and all that kind of stuff. Like, that's uh, that's where it's going, basically. It is all going that direction. So um, protecting yourself cryptographically is obviously the most ideal situation. I totally forgot what the question was initially. Oh. No, I was just asking if, like, if, you know... I just asked you for the Apple, time, dude. I didn't ask for, like... <laughs> yeah, even this Apple, uh, you know, this is, like, a, a positive UX iteration on KYC, but... yeah. Ultimately, it's still like KYC. Ah, okay. So this is this is what I was going to say. Actually, is oh man, it, I actually think this is probably like a lot of people talk about like Bitcoin versus Ethereum and shit like that. But I actually think this is the biggest sleeping giant that everybody needs to watch out for in a big way. So when you make that transaction with Apple Pay, 
what they're doing, and so for context, Starbucks, number one digital wallet app in North America, 26 million payments per day. Apple Pay, number two, 21 million, I think it was. And then Samsung and Google Pay is like 18, 90 million each. This is not America. Pardon? This is that, yeah, sorry, that's just North America. So collectively, that's what, I don't know, uh, 60 million or something like that, give or take, 80. Um, that's 80 million digital payments per day all being done relatively fast, right? Like when you do an Apple Pay transaction. Um, but what is actually happening to get set up with these uh, sort of biometric authentication, these strong custom authentication schemes, it's really actually heavy, heavy, heavy cryptography that's going on behind the scenes. Very similar to what you would think of as multi-party computation. If you're thinking in terms of new projects coming to ETH and um, like, uh, where, you know, sort of, I suppose like REN protocol and keep network and stuff, no one actually ever has the information, which is interesting. So if you go to shop at somewhere, like you go shopping somewhere and it's a merchant, the merchant isn't going to get all your information. They're only going to get, um, you know, whatever is permitted when you grant access to it. Um, they're not going to get your card information. So the person can't lose your card information. There's no I mean, the other day, 30 million credit cards in North America got leaked, I think, on the dark web and everyone just got total clusterfuck, right? But I think it's actually, I mean, obviously it's not good, but that's what chargebacks are for. So people can say, hey, my shit was leaked on the dark web and I've had a whole bunch of you know, fraudulent transactions. But without any one person having all the keys to the kingdom in terms of use, so we don't get a copy of your face at the time or anything like that. Um, we only get limited amount of billing address to validate based on any kind of compliance policies we may have. We might have. We don't get the raw card number. We get a tokenized one that only can be decrypted by the interchange network. So it's kind of this, quite literally, a circle jerk in a sense where everyone is sort of they know enough to do their part in the whole in the whole sequence of the transaction, everyone knows their part. And the reason why there's a liability shift for the most part is because as you're unpacking your little part of this cryptographic parcel, when you make a payment, um, you only get to see your part. So if a part is leaked or, you know, there's an information leakage, you know, you can identify exactly where in the supply chain of that payment it went wrong because not everyone can see what you can see. I'm the worst explainer on earth. I'll just no, that, that makes sense. And I guess what the, the next logical step is like, you know, so do you like, why do you think that this is underrated? Like, is, is this going to actually help consumer privacy? You think like long-term in a substantial way, or is the fact that there is an interchange network that can decrypt, you know, this stuff, like, is that trust a third party? Like, well, so, so I mean like the interchange network, you think of like, uh, imagine them like, ETH, the chain, right? So when you, you can sign a transaction and you don't need to broadcast it, but you can just, you can construct a transaction where someone can verify that you did sign that transaction. So if you go on Etherscan, you can see verified signatures and everyone's signing transactions from once that says, hi, mom, or, you know, it's a bunch of people extorting people, whatever it is. Um, you can cryptographically prove that someone signed something. So I think it's when the interchange network, the only part they get is your raw card number. So, you know, you don't want to give your card. I remember calling up like Domino's or whatever and being like, hey, yeah, can I get a large pizza? And just like, you know, telling the dude my phone number over the phone. Um, I think that it's definitely, it's definitely going to illuminate who's not doing the right thing. 
So for instance, if, uh, you know, if everyone's using digital wallets, yet me still ordering dominoes and I'm like, my card gets leaked, I'm going to be like, fuck, I'm doing the wrong thing. I should have, I didn't know that I could use a digital wallet where I never actually give over my card. It's a step in the right direction. Do you think that that prevents crypto? Does he, do you think that fills in with crypto? Cause I think traditional payment layers are going to be, are going to, you know, house crypto personally. 100%. And this is what a lot of people sleep on. And I find it really surprising because I mean, people like to take shots at visa, right? I mean, look, are they perfect? Probably not. Are they the best? Maybe not. I don't know enough to comment, but one thing you do know is that all these records and ledgers and all these sort of internal closed loop systems, they've had to be secured. And whether it's like an open public accessible thing, that's to be like, that's not, that's not the case because the technology wasn't there when they started, obviously. But Visa is world-class, top tier, really fantastic at securing digital certificates. And essentially they're probably the longest running custody digital you know, digital asset custody company on the planet. So I would absolutely uh, support Visa going to this space 100%. And that's where I think they go, not be like, oh my God, payments are cheaper or something. You know, I think that's very, uh, that's, they, they couldn't win that argument, I don't think. The real argument would be, can they secure, you know, secure certificates like or private keys uh, as well as, you know, these crypto companies. And I think absolutely. So let's talk about why this is important. Uh, and so the idea of being able to get from the fiat world into the crypto world fast is uh, really beneficial for, and for a lot of theoretical applications, absolutely critical, um, especially applications like Augur. You know, Augur has been built out and released and has received some usage, uh, but it's generally been assumed that applications like Augur really need basically instantaneous onboarding from the fiat world into the crypto world in order to really fulfill the vision that the application has. So can you kind of illustrate why this is uh, powerful? Well, I mean, Augur specifically, for those that don't know, Augur is the prediction market. Um, and a lot of the times when it comes to predictions, you've got people that are making predictions, aka betting on a specific outcome. So, you know, in markets that are six months long, maybe it's not as parent, like maybe it's not as needed for an instantaneous deposit. But if I'm sitting there with friends and we're all betting on like a soccer game or we're trying to see who's going to win the election that night or something, yeah, it's got to be real time because this is financial markets or like everything boils down to value, right? And value is going to, you know, there's, finance associated very closely with that. So those markets change and you need to be as agile as possible. And that means you need to be able to make decisions like making a deposit without the sort of, you know, make a deposit. Okay, cool. I hope my bet still stands in five like five days time or whatever, when the payment completes. Mm -hmm. it's not going to wait for anyone. Um, so yeah, I think that that would speak to it where being able to act in real time, it's important for the end user to be able to do that for one because they can do what they want. But even so for protocols to or protocols, projects, anything to be able to capture value, you want to be able to capitalize on servicing a user that wants to make that decision there and then. Sorry. Is that what, is that what you meant? 
Yeah, 100%. Just, just when I illustrated it. I, I just yeah. realized, I was like, yeah. sign language. I'm like, what? <laughs> you're, you're fantastic. Don't apologize yeah. one more time. All right. Yeah. So for like, um, for a prediction market for like the presidential election, where we're like, I don't know how many months out, like 10 months out from the presidential election, like people can wait six days for an ACH transfer. The market's not going to change that fast. But then we haven't really been, been, haven't touched on something like maybe an NBA game where like you might, might want to place a bet on a specific quarter or in a specific minute, because if in the, the bull case of, of crypto and Ethereum and Augur is that, these things have the capacity to ha- to change minute by minute and basically be like high frequency, high volume trades. Absolutely. And so getting instant on ramps to things like that are, are crucially important. A hundred percent agree. And like, exactly. Like if you think like, if you've ever gone to, so like I'm from Australia where everyone gambles on everything all the time. Like I think literally by, by per capita, I think we're number one or maybe number two or three, but, Full of uh, gambling is a very big thing in Australia, basically. Um, so everyone's betting on different sports and stuff. And like, if you go to a, a horse race, for example, you go to the races. Um, is that common over? Is that common in America? Yeah, okay, common, so, but we got them. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, okay, so great place to get drunk. Okay, exactly. <laughs> and we, Australians get drunk, so we go to the races a lot. Um, but I mean, I actually don't. I've been like once or twice. But if a mate's like, "Oh, you," there's a really hot tip, like. I'm betting on this horse and you're like, Oh fuck. And then you go and run to put a bet on like, Oh, I'm going to run five days in advance to put a bet on. It just doesn't work. Like it is right. minute by minute. Day, like, you know what I mean? You've mm-hmm. got to have, uh, you've got to be reactive. Uh, yeah. And you can't be reactive if you've got to have a three to five day forecast before you make any kind of deposit. So I think this is where we can kind of get into like the Bitcoin versus ETH philosophy. Like I'm, I'm actually shocked that you guys can even think of a blockchain and then associate that with really fast deposits and, and making things happen. Like, I, like how does Augur get there? Like I'm sure that like your centralized part of this equation mm-hmm. is lightning fast. You know, I don't know necessarily like is yeah, yeah. making bets on Ethereum lightning fast. Like what, what do you have thoughts on that? Well, I mean, we talked about like the cryptographic signatures and being able to verify something with cryptographic proof, but it doesn't mean that it's been, you know, broadcasted specifically. So, I mean, I look at Bitcoin, I think Bitcoin has a, I mean, I don't see it as a payments network, really. I think it's, it's kind of, people use it. It's, that's not, it's core competence. No, it's not. And I think it's almost like, missing uh missing so many more opportunities generally speaking to focus on that because it's like i mean you see all these sort of solutions trying to really kind of fit this problem of how do we make it a payment thing how do we make it a payment thing i mean it doesn't have to be a payment thing you don't have to make like it's not meant to maybe it is i don't know i don't know satoshi personally um but yeah i I don't really know i don't think of bitcoin as a payment thing but coming back to the original thing uh, the question I, th- I look at it just cryptographically in like a signature. So if you gave me ETH, you could sign it on a piece of paper. And if I had enough brain power, I could probably calculate whether or not it's accurate and truthful. It doesn't mean that you've had to go and, uh, you know, you've had to actually interact with the chain just yet. Um, I think a really cool That's thing. That's not how I works right now though. Oh, you were talking about 
Olga. Yeah. I mean, it's funny that you're even talking about Olga in that context. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, but yeah, I I told you, you we want to just exchange stuff off the blockchain. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Olga specifically. um, hmm. Yeah. I mean, the market can't even tell what the market is itself if it doesn't have all the market in it and all the market can't get in it because of pending transactions or anything like that. So I feel like that's in and of itself, uh, it, it, that's its own problem to solve. And that just needs a, a deeper liquidity pool of digitized dollars, basically. Or like DAI coming to, DAI's coming to Orga V2, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. Totally. Cool. I mean, but that still doesn't really solve, you know, Ethereum blockchain as like being the the interaction layer, the compute layer of Augur. Rollups, Roll- baby. Oh, <laughs> talk roll-ups. to me about rollups. Fill me in. Uh, yeah. So for people like me, rollups are a magic word that simply solves all problems that I can't actually figure out how to define. Um, but the uh, the oh, uh, the, the actual so you seem optimistic about them. <laughs> Basically, it's 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 like fitting less into more, uh, or more more into less. It's allowing you to send more data, uh, just in a smaller bite-sized package. It's like sending a zipped file of data through Ethereum, uh, and that can allow the throughput needed um, to increase the capacity of, of L1 Ethereum for apps like Augur. That's that's how I understand it at a high level. Yeah, I mean, I. You, same. Now I know more. <laughs> but I, I always, I, I, I haven't heard about, I mean, I've obviously heard about optimistic roles and all that kind of stuff. And that's sort of a cryptographic, neat little package that gets put on chain versus that part, that part, that part, and that part. It's basically mm-hmm. compressing. And so when I was thinking about it, and I mentioned before about like, uh, you know, ETH and Bitcoin and stuff like that versus these Apple Pay style things. When I think of optimistic rollups, I think of a compressed single transaction with five or six different um, sort of hops that have gone through. And that's just the, crypto, the, the cryptographically verifiable endpoint. And that's mm-hmm. what gets put on chain, basically. Right? Yes. Is that sort of, is it sort of similar in that like multi-party handshake sort of yes. thing? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I think so. Uh, it's just... Um, it's specifically for batch transactions. And so it's not for you making a bunch of transactions at once. It's for a bunch of transactions all happening within a block of time and then rolling that up and allowing you to pay a high gas fee for that inclusion because the total gas fee per transaction is very low. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. So the other thing I wanted to say was- I understand that's batching. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's very experimental. Yeah. Blocks on uh, blocks. Also with privacy though, because when you batch, you also reduce uh, you reduce exposure to the original sender, which is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's how you scale a lot of things is, is batching type stuff. But um, absolutely. I mean, subscri- like that's subscriptions really. It's like, it's not effective to pay for something $5 a day when you're paying a 25 cent transaction fee because that becomes, mm-hmm. you know, a 5% fee every time you want to make it. So it's like, hey, we'll subscribe for this and monthly basis. It's all the same stuff, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, what Nick Sabo talks about that in one of his articles is just like the mental burden of, of yeah. that. But um, David, do you have a, another subject? Or I, I would love to get uh, Mike's take on like, DeFi, the space in general, you know, it sounds like you really think 
highly of what's happening in MakerDAO and Dai. You keep bringing it up, so I'd love to. It. Yeah, we'll, let's love do to it. Go in that direction. But can you see my my tattoo? No. Oh, where is it? Let's see it. <laughs> no, on camera. Yeah. <laughs> don't have one. Oh, yeah. sorry. I thought you were saying. Oh, let's see it. No, um, no, I don't have one. But I mean, I'm like, I'm a massive fan. Like, I can't, I can't even. Under, I think almost just. Top to bottom, I don't know, there is not an ounce of fat that I can see, other than obviously they had some troubles like last year or the end of 2018 with sort of internal uh, internal issues. But I mean, like, man, they have set the bar really, really high for anybody looking to execute anything, period. They've been grinding it out for years on years. And for a lot of people, I feel like they became an overnight success. Um, people sort of just popped out of nowhere. Um, but they have done their homework. They've been so methodical in, you know, they didn't do an ICO, but they still brought in the right people to make sure that they've got a very good, I suppose like a hardened base of people that can grow the project to where they want it to grow and where we're in sort of taking the project. So I feel like that's so important. Um, these are networks, right? Networks can't go backwards. It's not a startup that's a top-down thing. It is a network that, you plant like any architect is designing a seed that they're going to put in the ground and that's got to basically grow into a flower over all these different conditions. Um, the same thing. So when I saw like people listing, you know, rushing to do an ICO, then list their token on Binance. I think that's fantastic for a short term liquidity opportunity. Um, but long term, you've just distributed your token to, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of, uh, people that have no interest in what your project's doing. They just care, did the number go up or down today? And it's sort of just like a different colored lottery ticket, you know, just throwing them around. So, I mean, the world would look very, very different if Satoshi uh, designed Bitcoin and then he didn't go to cryptographers to harden the base and get more eyes on it. If he went straight to porn and gambling companies, um, maybe it would be better, maybe it not. But I think at the time, they would have had a very different agenda in how it should grow and where it should grow than let's say like cryptographers and stuff like that. So I find that methodical execution of make it out just like really cool. So is that the, what you asked? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> on this, okay. On kind of the same note, like there's obviously a lot of VCs that are large holders of maker and we're part of making that possible. Like, do you think that that base is, Favorable? Well, I don't think that is the base. Okay. I think, so. I mean, they're big bag holders, but they're big bag holders probably because of the same reason I said. So the biggest bag holders, I mean, Polychain got in, but they got in way earlier. They were like, I think one of the earlier VCs, but that was still like the Andreessen Horowitz's of the world and stuff like that. That only came in end of 2017. Um, so I feel like most people had, I think, Maker was the second token on Ethereum, or the first, but first or second, ERC twenty two. Augur was the first. Sorry, that's right. You're muted. Sorry, apologies. Uh, are you talking about literally the first ERC twenty token ever minted? Uh, yeah, I thought so. Or the first project building on Ethereum. Yeah, MakerDAO was super early, but I, th I don't think they began the ERC-20, but maybe... Oh, no, no, no. Wrong. I don't think they began the ERC-20 standard, but I definitely right. think they were... They're more Augur were the first ones. I, yes. I, I think they might have been second. 
Yeah, they very very close, very early. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, MakerDAO so, started as a as a team before Ethereum yeah. even launched. Yes, and they were what uh, was it? Deep Pride or um, was the other one? It was uh, fuck. There was another. There was another one um, which was it was another stable coiny kind of protocol. Which one? BitShares. BitShares, was it? Is that one? Yeah, yeah. but no, that uh, wasn't built on Ethereum. That was they. No, 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 that wasn't built on it. But that was sort of the the foundations yeah. were there, and they, they had what? the CDPs. Yeah, they they invented CDPs. Cool. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but I think, uh, I think to your point, by the way, I think oh, they're doing finger guns at each other. <laughs> if you can't see, uh, but uh, like pointing to each other. But I think like yeah, I mean it's it's not ideal, right? That it feels poisonous to like a very, like the antithesis of what it's all about. But I think at the same time, um, you know, I think like one of the reasons why Maker is super exciting is because they're like, like for instance, we have to take KYC. Do we want to take KYC? Fuck no, I've said it before, I don't want to take it. I don't want to look at your like selfie and stuff like that. But I mean, and we don't want to burden uh, ourselves by having to secure that sense of information as well, because mm-hmm. if, we get leaked, if it gets leaked, we're accountable. Um, and I feel like it's, some teams have different approaches and I think all approaches is the right approach right now. You know, throw as many things at the wall and see what sticks. And Maker has chosen a pragmatic approach, which may be seen as short-term, one step backwards, but they're taking one step back to go five step forwards kind of thing. Um, what is that? Well, also, I was going to ask you, I'm just talking out of my ass. No, Jason. So, um, oh yeah. So you said that uh, the whole, the fact that VCs have like such a large holding of the token is, uh, you know, antithetical to all of what crypto is. And mm, ish, like, I mean, ish. I don't, I, but, I, but I don't specifically, but I, I mean, I don't think it's really that bad. I, I, I agree. I think that people are making out MakerDAO to be something closer to Bitcoin or Ethereum. It's as in closer to a base layer chain rather than what they actually are, which is a project or team or company, for-profit company building on top of Ethereum. And so providing or laying down the, uh, the template of what qualifies as decentralized using Bitcoin or Ethereum's qualifications onto MakerDAO is just not progressive. It's not helpful. But you know what? Here's the thing, right? So like the SEC, so like talking about like what's a security, what's not and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And I don't know how deep down the rabbit hole you guys got, but um, you know, everyone was saying in 2017, are you a security? No, we're not a security. We're a utility token. Here's why no person would ever get an ROI from our token because Mm -hmm. they don't want to be classified as security. So they're doing whatever they can to explain why nobody's going to get an ROI. How does a system, it is impossible for any distributed system ever to become self-sufficient if the individual parties involved in it aren't being compensated. So if you're the SEC, now I'm not the SEC, but if you're looking at the people to point your guns at and like cut the head off or you want to bring the hammer down as the SEC and say, this is not cool. The last one you would look at would be make it out. Yes. Sure. Great. You get an ROI. I mean, wait, someone gets compensated for putting their capital at risk and the other person is getting value from that. That that's how it grows to become like a Bitcoin or Ethereum Mm -hmm. where it is a self-sustainable system where people like all counterparties are having their met, like their needs met. It's not a 
sweeping mums and dads in and then, you know, taking them for a ride and then losing out. So I think that a lot of people overlook that. And now we're left with a wasteland almost of teams that can't be as efficient as they would be mm-hmm. able to be if, um, if they could sort of evangelize the fact that they are centralized, you know, in a, in a sense, right? It's a team, mm-hmm. um, they've got an office, everyone's sitting, you know, in the same place, writing code and stuff. And that's okay. I think like comparing like a Uniswap uh, or Compound, um, they, don't have, they don't have a token, but it just helps being able to be centralized. There's advantages mm-hmm. and disadvantages. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, anyway, maybe not. Depends if you, yeah. So Plus, I, want, I mean, there are advantages. There's coordination advantages. Exactly. You can move faster, but like, you know, I think when people think DAP or protocol, it, it's a little different. You know, I'm not trying to, you know, implement what is the right standard. I, I want truthful, you know, disclosure more or less. Yep. Um, but I guess, you know, kind of moving away from that and I'll, I'll kind of want to get what, like, where do you see this whole space? Like right, right now your, your application supports Bitcoin done. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Like why, uh, and USDC. USDC. Like, yeah. why did you choose those assets? Like, does that kind of tell us something about like how you're seeing the space of like money and these money protocols? Yeah, I mean, I think it comes down to a few things. Uh, one, we're like a tiny team, so we have to pick our battles really carefully. Um, and one of the things that was, you know, obviously we want to list all these tokens, if there's an opportunity to make money and we need to keep the lights on. I mean, that's a big thing that we get asked and stuff like that. But if we think that that's going to be a flavor of the month situation where it's not going to add material long-term value to what we're doing and like the overall picture, um, we find it really, really difficult to deploy any resources towards that because I mean, you know, small amount of engineering, small amount of growth. Um, we are a small team and we're not sort of the team that's raised, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. We're pretty much the complete opposite, even though we are in a really nice office, by the way. I know, I know. And it's so weird when we moved in here because like my co-founder and I, we shared a, uh, we were living on bunk beds in a, at Boost VC and in a hacker house. And that's how we met actually when I first moved here. Um, and we were sharing a bedroom, literally like two mattresses from Amazon that cost like 50 bucks for two of them or whatever. That was our living in our apartment before here. And that was the office, the apartment, the everything. And so moved into here and we're like, wow, fancy. Anyway, so, <laughs> Got uh, the fancy mics too. Yeah, I know. Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I, so I guess like with that example though, small team, you can only focus on so many assets. Like that is yeah. kind of an example of liquidity mm-hmm. begets liquidity, right? Like you can, liquidity you know, create, what do you beget? Yeah. What does that mean? It creates. Yeah, 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 okay, yeah, yeah. Like you are liquid there before you are yeah. more able to be more liquid and that's compounding. Yes. Like, and yeah. this is the biggest thing that so many teams miss out on in like the biggest liquidity networks are successful because liquidity creates liquidity, right? And I'm like, I really like uh, Compound. And I was saying the one of the problems with the bear markets or crypto winters, generally speaking, is it forces teams to step step away from their core competency and it makes them try and find other ways to keep the lights on. So you've got this sort of, instead of going straight towards your goal, you're sort of marching left to right, which is going to be, keeping the lights on each time you've got to grab these low hanging opportunities that can generate revenue if you need it or whatever. But 
it's actually really detrimental. So like, um, you know, compound is exceptional, but like constant, sorry, compound, I'm just, I'm going to ditch the compound analogy for a sec. Liquidity, right? The, who, what do you think of when you think of liquidity? I think of Lyft and Uber, Airbnb. In San Francisco. Well, I mean, yeah, San Francisco, but that's the thing, right? So if I'm Airbnb or I'm Uber, um, I can build the rider and driver app and I can upload it to 140 app stores. Like that's the, no one's saying I can't do that, but they rely on riders and drivers, just like a token or an asset listed on Coinbase relies on buyers and sellers. It's an artist. So you have this market where if Uber opened and said, Hey, um, or Airbnb, they say, Hey, we're the number one place to go for an on-demand driver. And you're like, Oh, sick. Nice. And then you pick up your phone, you call it and it's amazing. Right. And you get like two minutes later, this person shows up and you, you go and tell your buddy, you're like, Oh my God, you've got to check this app out. And it's like, cool. And they're in, I don't know, Italy in the middle of wherever. And they pick it up and they call it and it says no available. Now Uber, plant, remember we're architecting a seed for networks. That's what these are. These are networks, they're not startups. And when you're planting that seed, you have to be as uh, deliberate or as empathetic as possible to understand how to grow. So Uber, Airbnb, all those marketplaces uh, that need liquidity of their, you know, what, what's relevant to them, they don't launch everywhere straight away they concentrate liquidity really, really aggressively so that when they do launch in a city, it's an explosion. It's like a comet hitting the city or an asteroid hitting the earth or whatever, and not just a... <laughs> because the city doesn't get as much value, right? So if we're, let's say we wanted to uh, enable DeFi across all of Wire, um, it, and we go, oh, you can do everything. It's like this, 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 and then you can do 10 things. If, if we're saying uh, we're getting uh, savings from the DSR and we're getting, you know, getting it from all these different protocols, we can't concentrate, like we can't make the asteroid hit the city. Like it's not going to be as big a, as impactful. Sorry, I'm so shitty with analogies, by the way, guys. <laughs> um, but I mean, like it needs to be concentrated so that it can proliferate, like grow by itself. And then there's a time where they step away and they go to the next city and they go to the next city and the next city. So um, when it comes to what we offer and listing hundreds of assets or one or two or whatever, we really think about that um, when we deploy any kind of uh, sort of position in the space that can potentially add value, that's what we sort of the line of thinking is how can we do it uh, in a meaningful way. Did you want the extended answer or? <laughs> no, no. I mean, I, it makes sense. You kind of answered the part about like why wire lists those mm -hmm. assets, dived into liquidity and how that kind of works. Um, what kind of uh, DeFi protocols yeah. do you use on a on a day to day basis, just personally? Dude, DeFi zap. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I have not. I have not yet yeah. used it. I understand no. how it works, but I haven't used it yet. Yeah, but you're not the target user, right? I mean, sorry, maybe. Uh, Maybe you are if you're if you're feeling lazy. What's DeFi Zap? I I don't even know what it is. Yeah, what Seriously? a loser. Um, yeah. dude, <laughs> we're done here. Yeah. No, 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 no. I just like I, so I'm a massive fan of like Zapier type products, mm -hmm. generally mm -hmm. speaking. Um, and I think it's sort of like very in the ethos of sort of where we're going as a company, generally speaking, as well. But DeFi Zap is sort of you know if you told someone to 
do anything with, let's say, the DSR or Compound or anything like that. Um, they're going to have to buy ETH and they take that ETH and they're going to have to open a CDP. They're going to have to make allowances. Then they're going to have to convert it. Da, 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 da. It's basically just stitching that all together and putting it in a, hey, just send money to this address. Don't worry. You don't have to think of anything else. It's, you know, um, mm -hmm. shortcuts, pathways, sort of a risk. So does me, it just sorry. make all the transactions at once and bundle it into one transaction? Is that how it works? Um, optimistically speaking, uh, that was like an optimistic roll-up joke, which was shit because it's irrelevant <laughs> in the whole context of this. Um, no, I, well, I don't actually know if they do. Um, maybe they do. I, I haven't, I haven't seen it, but I mean, you only do one transaction, but if it's like completely atomic right. or I, I know make it out used to do that on the CDP portal. That was sort of a really big innovation that they did where they basically said these seven steps you don't have to do anymore. We've abstracted it all for for you on Oasis, I think it was. Or, right, 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 right. Yeah. yeah, I think that is what they do. I'm looking on their on their site right now. I think so. Like, if you want to go trade die through Uniswap, you have to go and um, give permissions to that token, and then that's one transaction. I think what they do is they just give permissions and then set the parameters for how much die or ether you want, and then they just send it in all at once. Uh, which is cool because like you can go to yep. DeFi, DeFizap.com and, and do some of this stuff. But I really think that people um, from other protocols, like I think Xeron is going to build into, oh, I just triggered Siri. I think Xeron is going to uh, trigger right into uh, DeFizap and uh, just use them to, because you have to go and give permissions to Xeron anyways. And so just using DeFizap, you can get rid of those extraneous transactions that you just don't need. So Dude, you're preaching to the choir. I, I wish mm -hmm. you knew. Uh, yeah, that's if you ask anyone on my team, I just like when that even when that came out, um, I was just like, people were like in, in my team, they're like, hey, Mike, look, you'll love this. I was like, ah, <laughs> I'm lazy and I'm not technical enough to do anything competently. So that was it was awesome. Uh, I've had a chance to speak, uh, speak with Noda, uh, who I think he, he like the founder and CEO, of, I think it is. Uh, and he's just such a good person. Like, I mean, he's a really good dude. Like, and we just basically, I just sort of like hit them up about being just crazy enthusiastic about that premise in general. So um, yeah, I think what they're doing is really cool. Uh, and I think that's the direction. Like last year as a company, we had a goal of zero to crypto kitties in 30 seconds. But now we think about like the next layer back is uh, zero to building a crypto kitties in 30 seconds. So how can a non-technical developer or a developer, now you go to low code sort of people who might be technically competent, but they're not developers. So they might be able to put together things like if this, then that, or Zapier right. and stuff. Um, and eventually you're just working your way back to letting everyone be able to create cool stuff. So everyone becomes a developer at the end of the day. Well, not really, but you know what I mean? Because um, everyone's like, there's a lot of people, a lot of creativity out there. We want as many... Uh, if someone's got something cool to show, I want them to be able to show it, you know? I, I'm waiting for the drag and drop smart contract app. I want, I want somebody to build that. Because somebody did build the if this, they called it if this, then that. Yeah, and then what a hackathon. It was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was great. Have you been to, so like Austin Griffith, uh, mm -hmm. 
it's Griffith, not Griffith. Yes. No. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry. Uh, no. Like, yeah, he's been. I, I think he's always on point with a lot of cool stuff. That's just like just sort of throwing creativity and tooling out there for the community to sort of like play around with. Um, and I think one of the latest ones was ETH build. So if you haven't checked it out, check out ETH.build. That's the closest thing I think I've seen to mm. what you were talking about. Um, and, and he does really good tutorials where he's explaining everything along the way. I think that's one of the biggest things is you can give the tools and everyone can have exciting, you know, do exciting things, but to really like educate people and help people understand, I think that's got a longer lasting impact. And so I think it's cool. I really, really like the education side whenever someone's doing that. I think it's all awesome. Austin's great. We've had him on the pod actually. And that was mm -hmm. uh, that was a great interview. But I guess, so, you know, POV Crypto is a Bitcoin versus Ethereum podcast. I think one reason it's very helpful for Ethereans is because, like, a lot of ETH podcasts are really tech-focused and not really, like, censorship-resistant focus. And, not, like, I think I bring that voice a lot to people in the ETH community. So when I hear you guys talking about ETH Zap, right, like, is that, that's a, that's a company, right? Like, can you talk to me, like, how is that censorship-resistant? Or is it, like, Zapier, where... Sure, it's making these things easier, more fluid. Everyone builds on top of it, but ultimately now you have like a central, you have a trusted third party that's even making these things possible. Is it like that? Is that correct? Or no, is it okay, that's a good point. Yeah. So, so, so comparatively, let's say Zapier, for example, if you're not familiar with Zapier, connect your Google Sheets, connect your this, connect your that. And they've got full, you know, keys to the kingdom, theoretically, to all that information. So, or if, if they shut down, then. Yep. If they shut down, the Zaps turn on. Yeah. yeah. Um, so one of the things actually with DeFi Zap is, look, I, they're another team in the space. I don't really, I don't think there's any sort of censorship resistant kind of initiative or that kind of foundation, but they've done it well in that it's not sitting on Z DeFi Zap. It's, they are just the messenger. So if they break in the time of transit, then yes, then that's problematic, but you're not depositing it all into DeFi Zap. They're just saying, hey, we've uh, we pre-packaged this mm -hmm. autopilot for you and they give it away like that. So I think in that regard, it's super good in terms of like security and stuff like that. Um, sure. But in a, when it comes to like the censorship resistant conversation and stuff like that, I think um, I always just boil everything down to security basically because, and that's one thing that's really, really overlooked. And that's probably the, the stance on um, Bitcoin versus Ethereum and that kind of uh, mentality, it's yes, there's tons of cool things being built on Ethereum and lots of DeFi projects, but I mean, everyone is sort of nervous on these concoctions that are being cooked up and it's just the market's swelling like crazy and it will swell because there's a lot of value that can be captured out that's not already in the network so it can it can welcome a lot more value in but um but i think everyone sort of has this sort of nervousness that it's going to pop uh and that's because of you know security related uh curveballs that are you know that lay there that people don't know could happen um yeah shall we wrap so up censorship resistance Sorry, my internet is just time. terrible. I just said, shall we wrap up or do you have any more questions? Oh, I, did you dig into what you wanted to dig? Yeah, I feel like I mean, you wanted to talk yeah. Bitcoin versus Ethereum mm -hmm. and stuff. Because I have actually tons of cool things. I, yeah, let's, I mean, let's do it. Okay, so like you sell me your house, right? Sure. 
Yeah, nice. Congrats, yeah. by the way, I'm buying the house in San Francisco. Places, oh, mate, so fucking expensive. Okay, when you buy someone's <laughs> house, you're not, you don't give me the keys and say, there you go, thanks very much. You do all the paperwork, right? Right. And the paperwork is because that's where, if you did give me the keys, you still have legal recourse to come and say, no, he's in my house. Because the paperwork says, the deed to your house says that you are the rightful owner of that. So when I think of you know, the Bitcoin versus Ethereum kind of conversation, I'm like, I see Bitcoin as it's the most secure chain because it's the heaviest. And if it's the heaviest, then that is the source of truth. So if, that, if that's the number one thing that can't be bullshitted, just like the sun in the sky, if, if you can't, you know the sun's coming up tomorrow and that is sort of just a given. And it's, it's very fair to say that it's, it's, I suppose it's very fair to say you want everything to be as secure as possible. And especially with DeFi, I think about uh, talking about centralized teams versus decentralized teams earlier. One of the things that people uh, sort of can't take advantage of is storing a backup or like a hash on, uh, on let's say Bitcoin because it's harder to bullshit. If you store a hash of any conditions and then compound, let's say compound gets hacked, right? Um, compound can say, hey, we're reinstating, you know, every half an hour we take a snapshot of our database or like our holdings on the ETH chain and we back it up on as a hash on the Bitcoin blockchain. Cool. Then if something does happen, they can reinstate it from that point in time. And that's, that then sort of makes me think about less of this Bitcoin versus Ethereum, but it's sort of like whatever gets built anywhere will always be secured by something that is harder to break, basically. And I always think of that because I'm sort of like with Bitcoin, I think its key property is not about payments, it's about security and being the hardest, like the best lens of truth or the hardest bullshit. And so when I think about it, I think of it sort of as the backup that can, you know, hold the truth. Uh, and then that brings the question of, well, does that mean if I'm relying on my backup on Bitcoin, am I building on Bitcoin by building on Ethereum? But just because I'm not writing smart contracts, am I relying on Bitcoin to build my products and stuff like that? Um, sorry, that's a bit dis- is, is that where you see things going? Uh, I'm really doing that right now. Uh, no, they're not. But so I think, I think, uh, 100%, that's exactly where it's going. And that's not, I'm not right, but that is just, because I look at contracts, everyone's trying to look at uh, smart contracts is why aren't traders trading on decentralized exchanges and all that sort of stuff. I mean, Uniswap to me looks like it overthrew zero um, X as sort of the exciting sort of decentralized trade protocol, not because it had the best rates or anything like that. It's because everyone could participate in a very verifiable deterministic way, not which speaks much more to a machine or a contract, which is a machine, like a smart contract, so a CDP. CDP, when it's got to get executed, it doesn't go, oh, no, but I think the market's going up. I'm going to trade it. It says, you've got to get rid of this position right now and execute it. Mm -hmm. So it needs the most, uh, not the best rate, it needs the most absolute certain predictable outcome I think and that's why I, something that's maybe not seen as what we think is the best but um, you know a contract that's got to execute has to get rid of its you know position uh, I feel like I just feel like a lot of people think that we are the end users but you know I'm not saying like Terminator kind of shit but 
in reality, it's like, this is a great way for machines to finally communicate. If we look at the sun and that's what we set our watches to, then I feel like the most accurate representation of that for machines would be the heaviest proof of work, which would be uh, Bitcoin. So I don't think it's a competition. I think it's everyone's got their own place in the, in the ecosystem. Um, TBD, but I think it's cool. Now you can go, David. That's a unique take. I haven't heard that one. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Thanks. (laughs) I think it's a function of how you define heavy, right? Like, I understand what you mean heavy as in like... uh, Well, no, no, no. Pure pure energy committed. Okay. So, well, that that is a qualitative opinion opinion on on what heavy actually means. Uh, I think you you could also define heavy as how much... How much resources does it take to uncover a buried transaction, buried as in deep in the blockchain? And so, if Bitcoin, you need to burn, uh, you know, a hundred million dollars to to rewrite that transaction. That's one way. But in proof of stake, it could take you, you know, it could be a transaction can be buried in a proof of stake blockchain much faster. True. In theory, but, yeah, no, no, true. By capital. And I, I, I totally see you. Um, and where I kind of came, just to be again, like no idea like we all have no idea right mm-hmm. um you especially just no, <laughs> but i mean like generally speaking so that's a really good point right and a lot of people talk about proof of stake and hey really good theoretical point well okay so well let's think about proof of stake versus sort of the work right so if you're trying to have you ever like donated to charity what, what, what do you think, if, you're, if you make $100 every hour and you work 40 hours a week, that's $4,000 uh, $4, a week you're going to earn. So you have a choice where you can donate a $4,000 check to charity or you can get on a plane and go dig holes in, let's say, Africa for a week to the charity that you were going to donate to. Mm-hmm. What do you think is perceived as a more powerful representation of commitment or your personal... Uh, belief in what you're doing or that charity, I feel like the charity is going, or anyone looking at David is going to say, shit, he's really into that. Holy fuck. Good on him. He got on a plane, went to have been digging holes and helping them out uh, for a week versus you being like, yeah, make sure it gets to them. No, no. Here's where I, here's where I think that's different because that $4,000 check, I can pay people, I can pay a hundred more people to go do that cold digging work. And if we're talking about how much work can actually be done. Well, just because I'm too much of a prissy to actually dig coal, but if I can still get a hundred other people to Dude, dig that coal for me, that's more work. You always post work. You always make me look, uh, like, look at myself in the mirror like, disgusting. I don't like to get dirty. <laughs> no, but okay, so let's say, but, but again, I see you, 100%. You can deploy capital in a much more productive way. Mm-hmm. One, okay, so let's hold that thought and let's just start with a different thought for one sec because we're going to come okay. back to it. When you're hiring someone, let's say you start a company, right? You've mm-hmm. got two brilliant, talented people. It's a startup. And you know, typically a lot of startups, when they are making their early hires, they'll offer equity versus financial compensation directly. So if you're a startup and a founder and you go, you've got to pick between two people that are equally talented, one person says, no, I'm in this... Long haul, grind it out. Give me the equity. Give me like twenty percent in cash and the rest in equity. Versus, give me eighty percent in cash and twenty percent in equity. I feel like 
as a founder, you're going to take the person with that deeper seated commitment or uh, I suppose like that, um, that I suppose that inherently it, 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 uh, it sounds like they're going to be more committed, right? They're not financially mm -hmm. bored or swayed. So when you know that you have something with that level of, I suppose, like unquantified integrity in a sense, it's, it's really important to have that because especially crypto specifically, even retaining talent, uh, like generally with any startup, but crypto specifically is brutal. Bear markets, bull markets, ups, downs. It is so tolling on any person's mind, mental health, all that kind of stuff that I, you need someone that's going to be resilient through that. And so the person that's going to take the check and be easily bored is going to be less resilient in those circumstances. And so, um, you know, when I think about uh, that in terms of how does that translate to what we're even talking about and like, how does that translate back to crypto? Well, those people that are basically, you're taking your $4,000, your commitment as a person, when you get on that plane and you go to Africa and you start like doing your charitable work for a week, you are much more committed than the person that got paid to do it because the person that got paid to do it can be paid $5,000 not to do it. Right. Mm. And yes. so, just, pardon? Yeah, yeah. Does right. that make sense? So, so if a, if a network is, if a network is, like we said, so networks are about resiliency and they're a flat structure. So they're not a top-down startup um, in, in that sense. So the key to networks to success is if everything's flat, then they need to band together very tightly. And so. That's what makes a network strong, generally speaking, is that resiliency. And it comes from the amount of um, you know, people banded together, so to speak. So mm -hmm. when that requires, uh, I suppose, like a lot of, not integrity, just like commitment to the cause. Really interesting with like 2017 with the Bitcoin hard fork. Um, I mean, generally speaking, if you look at, yeah, if you look at that as a case study, that was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen ever because yes people talk about bitcoin maximalists and stuff like that but i mean to tell you what if if crypto is going to displace what it is set out to do i mean those are probably the people that i want in my corner when i'm versing someone else that is against crypto generally speaking right i want this extremely diehard brilliant kind of mentality might be hard to fight against it between uh, one another. But when I look at that in the larger scheme of things, I think it's a really powerful tone to set uh, right or wrong, basically. Um, yeah. You know, in, okay, last bit, David, last bit, I promise. These guys are like trying to get fuck off here. I'm joking. No, but, I'm, I'm loving it. Like, yeah, loving it. I kind of lost the thread with the whole uh, mining, uh, which because you said 80%, uh, some two employees, one makes 80% equity, one makes 80% cash. And then you think the 80% equity person is the one that's more committed. To me, that's proof of stake because equity is stake. So, so let me jump in here. Uh, I, okay. I think actually what you're saying is that buying hardware is, is actually a stronger commitment. Is, it is, is because it's much easier to write the check or to deposit proof of mm. stake than it is to get the rental agreement for the right. factory to deploy the hardware with 
mm-hmm. all this, oh fuck, is it going to work out? Do I know? There's so many X factors involved. So like mm. I see you definitely, and I'm not really that argumentative because I'm not educated enough on the subject, but I think the way that I see it is sort of like, yeah, it's like, it's kind of like, yeah, I don't know. I feel like, yeah, sorry for losing you. I'm so bad. With <laughs> I feel bad. Yeah, but I think there's a, there's a lot of, there's a lot of good in, you know, not just, you know all your kind of uh, analogies like there is a lot of truth there like it may take a little digging but it's, there's some good mm-hmm. stuff for sure yeah um so people i work with they call it translating like what the fuck is this idiot <laughs> talking about <laughs> but uh, you do but, have hey, some you know what you know what's the best thing in, in, like regardless try, i would never ever ever knock uh progress because progress is you know we're all making progress by trying something so maybe proof of stake turns out that Everybody is just totally obsessed with it and fascinated by it, and it works amazingly well. Um, and it very well could, we don't know, but you, you, you get an answer by trying. So by making a decision and taking a path, you will get the right answer because you'll know if it's wrong, you're on the wrong path. Like, because people know it's mm-hmm. wrong. Um, and that means that the right answer was that. So either way, you're going to get the right answer, but you don't get it if you don't try. So I'm always down for people Throwing shit at the wall, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I recently, I'm not going to name names, but I recently had a, a debate with a pretty prominent Bitcoiner, and I was actually making the like my take is like I'm very Bitcoin minded, and I think Bitcoin is the best investment, not investment advice. But I thanks for the investment advice. I don't I'm think go that. <laughs> yeah, you got to use water though. I, d- I don't think that um, like the other things actually subtract from the Bitcoin ecosystem. I think that they they add to the Bitcoin ecosystem. But I do just like make the distinction that it is the Bitcoin ecosystem, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, um, so, I mean, I don't know how much you agree with that, but it sounds like, you know, experimentation, making mistakes, learning what not to do. You find that all to be positive. I think, I think ultimately everything does vacuum in. Like, I mean, I think a lot of stuff has to go to Bitcoin. Defining going to Bitcoin means like we talked about those backups, right? The idea of storing your lens of truth. That means that I am relying on Bitcoin for something and I can't continue doing what I'm doing on another chain without that happening. So that's one way to look at it. But I mean, I think it, it even like if you're a maximalist, you say, no, fuck everything else, no matter what, fuck that. It's only Bitcoin. Everything else is shit. Sure. That's one opinion. And the other one is throw shit at the wall. I personally like throwing shit at the wall. When I go home, I pull, I take, uh, I was trying to basically say when I go home, I take a shit. I saw that one coming. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But no, generally speaking, I think like it's good to have both parties aggressively fighting for their opinion, just like a boxing match, Mm -hmm. a boxing promoter, when they sell a fight, they can't sell the good guy versus good guy, the best in the world. They sell the hero villain. They need the villain. It thrives on that villain because people tune in and get educated on things when there is a hero and a villain because they want to pick a side they're forced to pick a side and when you force people to pick a side you force people to self-educate and when you're self-educating it's much more powerful like education than being told something as opposed to discovering the answer yourself Um, and I feel like it's I feel like it's good to have those really aggressive opinions Um, yeah I don't know if it makes sense, but no, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. And I think it's a great place to wrap it up unless David has anything else to add. No, it's perfect. I'm doing another live stream in about 15 minutes. So I do have to wrap it up. Oh, sorry. 
Uh, Michael, uh, who do you want to hear from? Where can people find you? All that good stuff. Uh, what kind of developers can use Wire? Uh, very short. We've got some cool shit coming out in probably a week or two weeks, but uh, uh, you don't have to be a developer. I mean, that's the goal we want to get to. Uh, at SendWire, S-E-N-D-W-Y-R-E. Um, yeah, or our numbers on the website. Hit us up, ping us on Intercom. I'm on Twitter, but it's too awkward to say my name. Uh, Michael Dunworth one without the H. Um, yeah, guys, thanks. I think I'm. I think it's awesome. I love. I loved uh, talking to you guys, and I watch it before. I, I messaged you, Dave. That's the person that messaged you, by the way. It's the same person. I'm Michael Dunworth on Twitter. I messaged yeah. you saying, "Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah." yeah. I, I made that connection. That. I thought it had the S in it, so, <laughs> so I, I was like, "No, it's Dunsworth." Oh, oh, I thought it was Michael Dunsworth who messaged me. <laughs> Can you just emphasize the S for me, please? Because nobody else does that. <laughs> Guys, thanks so much, Harry. Thanks for contributing to the community and shit. You guys like doing shit. You don't have to do it. Uh, you're invested in the community, so you like you guys don't have. This is a case, David. This is it. You guys don't have to do this, right? Uh huh. You do it because you're committed. Yes. Yes. But so you're not being paid to do it. Well, no, I am making money from this podcast. That's okay. That's okay. But I mean, you know, the, that integrity shows your commitment to the community. Mm-hmm. I would do it. Proof if we of didn't have work, not stake, sure. David. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Thank you I very own much. equity in whatever POV crypto is. <laughs> All right, guys, let's wrap it up. Uh, thanks again for coming on the show. You guys know where to find it at POV crypto pod. You know where to find me on Twitter at CK underscore snarks, David. You can find me at Trustless State both on Twitter and on. Oh shit! I'm not on Medium anymore. I am now all on Bankless. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Bankless. Uh, Trustless State. Bank- Bankless where is, is where it's at. Uh, it might be shit's always off. free, right? Shit's always free. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, shit's so always okay. free. Props yeah. to you, da- David. You. Did not want to put his articles behind a paywall, so I, yeah. I give mm-hmm. you props for that. Uh, yeah. Thank you, sir. All right. Peace. Later. Bye, everyone. See ya.